competitive 40K network presents Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. And now your host, Tim Penny and the Art of War coaches. Hey folks, welcome to the Art of War. I'm one of your hosts, Steve Joel, radio presenter, husband, dad, decidedly average 40k player. So, here to ask the questions that really matter is the current third ranked player in the ITC, former Brohammer team captain. He's been the best in the world with Space Marines and Tyranids at various times. He's the winner of multiple GTs and majors. They call him the Boy King, John Lennon. John, a couple, of people, a couple of people have asked me why the headband. So let's hit that first. Why does the headband go on for tournaments? <laughs> why the headband? Oh, man. So, you know, we'll, we'll tell the little story here. Okay. So the headband started off uh, back in the day of people not thinking there were any good players in Florida. Uh, there were some jokes, and uh, notoriously, there was a podcast. I won't name the one. I don't want to shame them in hindsight. <laughs> where someone specifically said as a guest, there aren't any good players in Florida, so it doesn't matter. From that point, I resolved to, uh, well, I don't know, show them wrong. And that yeah. was kind of when me, Richard Siegler, had that, that wonderful magical season with Brohammer, where we heard that podcast, turned it around, bought a bunch of flights, and we went out there and won the ITC as a team. For that season, I was wearing, and afterwards, I was wearing a headband with a state flag of Florida on it so that everyone knew. Nice. All right. So it's just a bit of state pride. Absolutely. Nice. Okay. Well, I hope that answers the question. I can't tell you how many people have said to me, tell me why John Lennon wears the headband and I haven't had an answer until now. Now I do. Okay. We're going to introduce this week's guest in a second, but first, here's how the show works. Every week, we talk to a tournament winner or top player about an army that they have had success with at a big event, and we do it in two parts. Part one's the warm-up. We're going to break down the list, what's in it, how it works. The warlord traits, the relics, the strats, and how everything stacks and makes the army work. This is a lesson in list building. Then in part two, that's where we get into the real workout. Warm up, all done. It's where we look at the matchups. So whatever army you play, you're going to learn a heap in part two. That's when John and our guest will go head to head. Part two is for subscribers only, though. So listen, if you like what you hear in part one, go over to theartofwar40k.com and subscribe for the rest of the show. This week, we're going to one of the darkest parts of Camorra. We're taking the path of the Dark Elder into Thick City, home of slave machines and grotesque beasts. And our guide on this perilous journey is the ITC's, is in the ITC's top 10. He's won or podiumed so many events that it's just ridiculous. Too many to list here. He came so close to the finals at the G-Dub Open in Austin. The smell of it is probably still in his nostrils. Anthony Vanella, welcome. Thank you for the wonderful introduction there, sir. No problem. Now, are you the kind of person that goes over a game like that one against Manny time after time in your head, or do you just shrug it off and just look ahead to the next thing? Uh, in a game like that, uh, I try and just be like, all right, that happened. We really got to focus on the next game. Uh, right. I had a very difficult final round lined up after that game, so I had to really like get it back in the game real quick. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he is the other person on this podcast. That was <laughs> yeah, my last round. Right. I was going to say, wait, you, you played John as the last, the last I, match? I, I did. My yeah. reward for losing in the semifinals was to play John. Yeah, nice. <laughs> Listen, maybe before we start, John, uh, there'll be people who are wondering why some of the top players have moved away from the you know, 16 Raiders and leaned into Talos and Grotesques and Rex. What changed in that update that made people switch from one Drukari build to another? Of course. Uh, so we are, of course, going to be talking about Dukari, and we're specifically talking about Thick City, 
which is the archetype we referred to where people decide to take a lot of homunculus covens. Uh, I'm actually about 55% sure that Anthony came up with that name. But the point here is that uh, we are, we're taking Dark Eldar and we're making it a lot thicker and a lot tougher. And what happened with that balance update was a lot of units that were very good for Dark Eldar went up by, I don't want to say a lot, but a decent amount, certainly enough to change a list. And in exchange, they were given some Comunculus Coven units that went down in cost, where Talos went down 10 points, Grotesques went down 5, and there had already been some fringe Dark Eldar builds that had seen some success, like a top 16 at New Orleans from James Kelling, where they were taking the Artisans of Flesh. And that's a sub-faction of Drakari where you get minus 1 damage on your non-vehicle Homunculus Covens. So those Talos, Grotesques, and Racks Minus one damage is not so bad when you've got army-wide or faction-wide feel no pains, good invulns, relatively high toughness. Turns out that was pretty good. So we, we almost immediately saw a pivot from the, uh, the, the Drukari good stuff, is what people called it, where you took all the good Drukari stuff, you third in the list and you tabled people, into Thick City. Anthony, uh, I think you, you were the first person that I saw use the name Thick City. You did come up with that? Yes, sir. That was the, uh, the name spread for Spread like wildfire. Yeah, right? It just took off um i took what i thought at the time would be like a funny skew list to an rtt back in like september or so it was a good while ago now um and the original thick city was like 10 grotesques six uh chronos six talos like big in on the covens um when they were more expensive as well so it was like most of the list except for draz and I won all three games without dropping a point. And I was like, oh no, the list is real. It's not a joke. So uh, when the points buff rolled around, I was like, well, I guess we can take a ride back on down to the thick city and see what we can do. Um, nice. And I played a test game with like nerfed Jukari where I tried to like keep the good stuff dream alive. And then I was like, all right, that was good. It's definitely not as good as it was. And then I tried thick city again with some points movements. Um, and I was immediately like, oh, yeah, that's going to be the way forward. So and that's how we got to where we're at now. Yeah, that's the good stuff right there. That's so good. Well, listen, uh, we've, we've touched on it already. Why don't you just start at the beginning, talk us through your list, and then we'll start breaking it down bit by bit. Absolutely. So there's definitely some wiggle room in here. But the way I play it, I'm just going to read it literally straight down the line. So it's a 2,000 point list. Obviously, it starts at 9 CP, which is quite a bit. Uh, we'll get into that a little later. The first attachment is an Artist of Flesh detachment. It's that minus one damage for everything with that is Artist of Flesh. So we have a Homunculus with the Master Regenerist Warlord trait for a flat three heal. The Poisoner's Ampule Relic. And he is a Master Homunculus, or an Alchemical Maestro, which gives him the ability to get up when he dies on a two-up with D3 wounds remaining. In the troop slot, we have Homoxites, which are like upgraded racks. Um, they have an additional point on their invuln save. So when everyone else would be at a 6-up, they're at a 5. When everyone else would be at a 5, they're at a 4. And they ignore the first failed save each phase, which is a big deal. That's usually one less rack you're losing per shooting and combat phase that they are getting attacked in anyway. Up next is a unit of 5 Grotesques with the Monstrous Cleaver. They have, uh, they're basically just a T5 base, uh, goes up with the Homunculus. Four wound body with between the minus one damage and the four wounds, they can be really tough to shift. And because they're strength five with five attacks each that are AP two and damage two, they're super good into killing marines and things that don't reduce damage by one. Um, next up is the you know often the stars of the show is the Talos. So we have two units of three Talos. They're all identically equipped. They have heat lances, a Talos Icker injector, and the Talos gauntlet. 
The Icker Injector does D3 mortal wounds. You can only make one attack with it, but if it hits, like I said, D3 mortals. And then the Gauntlet is the equivalent of a Thunder Hammer. Um, into the next attachment is Dark Technomancers. Everybody knows and loves these boys. They were everywhere when the edition, well, when the Jakari book came out. Um, so leading this detachment is Drazar, who is my Warlord, uh, which gives him full reroll to hit and wound. Five racks, just five dudes. They usually just rod. Um, and then we have two units of three Kronos that have the Spirit Probe, which is a five-point upgrade that gives them uh, a six-inch aura on the one that has it of reroll ones to wound for core and characters in melee. Um, the last attachment is a... This is kind of where personal choice starts to come into the list. Uh, I went for a Cabal of the Blackheart detachment. I took a Court of the Archon, which was four slits, three Urgles, um, and then I took an Archon with Ancient Evil for the fight last. He's a Master Archon, so he has the fight twice, and he has the Gin Blade, so he's scary in melee. Uh, then we have five Cabalites and a Raider with a Dark Lance to round out the list at a clean 2,000 points. All right. I, I love it. I mean, not actually that much. I had to play against it. It was decidedly nasty. But uh, <laughs> I am ready to talk about just how good this thing is. So we, we've got Talos. We've got Kronos. They're, we, they're all in the right sub-factions. They're fantastic. We've already talked about kind of how this list evolved from the old Drukari, which you had also run to some pretty good success. My first question is, is... Going from, you know, what we call good stuff to Thick City, how did the playstyle change? So when you put this army on the board, it's still Drukari. It ain't slow. But it does have a, a noticeably different playstyle as an opponent uh, when I'm playing against each of those archetypes. How does it change for you as the player? And just generally, what is the playstyle for Thick City build? Cool. So from the pilot side, when I was playing good stuff, it was often kind of the setup before the crash. Um, old Drakari would hit you, at least how I was playing it, kind of all at once on the go turn, either turn two or more often turn three. You would kind of crash into the enemy. There would be so many fights in between the fights last from the Incubi and the Archon and this and that. that there would be like this big back-breaking turn that kind of just ended the game because everything had advanced turn one. You were either you know, in all these angles from all these boats it was really hard to get an eye on positioning, and then what would happen would happen. Thick City does not pilot that way. Thick City does move into the middle and then try and like have an execution moment where it's charging and you know doing a bunch of damage, but it's definitely less all at once. Thick City is much more of a tightened noose than it is like an all-out blitz. Um, you're not often going to get hit by five, six units at the same time with varying levels of killing power. This one's like, you know, the Talos will kill what's in front of them. And then the next turn, they will do it again. And then maybe by that point, the grotesques have hit as well. But it's much more um, methodical, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, it's really important to land, like, clean unit kills early because of a stratagem called Pain Siphon, where if you kill a unit near Kronos, you spend one CP. And that unit now has turn five power from pain for the rest of the game. So uh, Thick City is much more of like an avalanche, or like I said, that like tightening noose where it's creating pressure, pressure, and then after a while of just holding the opponent down, they've been unable to score primary. The differential there is too much. Your units are on farther long in power from pain than they should be, naturally anyway. Um, and the game kind of, you can smother them out from there. 
Anthony, can you talk us through with your homunculus uh, and your other characters and the various uh, warlord traits and bits and pieces you've chosen? Can you talk us through the traits you've chosen, why you've got them there, and maybe other options you considered and why you didn't pick them? Absolutely. So I actually just did some playtesting uh, over the last two weeks with changing something on the homunculus. So I guess we'll start with him. Um, so his two, his boiler trait and his relic. Uh, his boiler trait is Master Regenerist, which changes the homunculus flat, uh, heal of D3 on a monster or grotesque to flat 3. Um, that's a personal choice of just like the consistency there is key to me. And I don't find the other homunculus warlord traits to be super great. Uh, my homoxites are not exactly up in the thick of it, so I don't need to res them often. They're usually just hanging out of my home objective. And the flat heal three on something like Talos or Grotesque, where it's already minus one damage, they have a feel no pain. It's already so difficult to get those wounds on, like wounds through, that just healing them for three can be morale breaking, and that's kind of the idea. Um, his relic is called the Poisoner's Ampule. What this does is, at the end of the movement phase, I pick an enemy unit within nine of the homunculus. It does not require a line of sight. It turns off that unit's ability to receive and project auras, as well as, on a two-up, doing D3 mortal wounds. Um, important to note that the ability to turn off their auras is not tied to that two-up. So if you roll the one, it's not like you just lost half your relic, or lost your whole relic. Uh, you just lose the random pop of mortals. Um, for a little bit there, I was I tried a couple games with the Animus Vitae on him to give your army plus one power from pain for the turn. But it's a grenade, so you can't advance and use it. So if someone just stays outside of 13 of the homunculus, your relic is just useless all game. Um, so I ended up just going back to the ampule, and that's been great. Um, turning off auras is notable in a bunch of matchups that we'll go over in part two. But just in general, being able to turn off something's auras is very powerful. As well as doing out-of-phase damage in case Catan come back into the meta. I feel like uh, turning off auras is one of those things that when you tell your opponent at the start of the game that you can do that, uh, that becomes like this terrifying thing that they just want to avoid as much as possible. Is it as much about you know keeping keeping that fear, fear of the thing uh, happening as much as it actually happening? Yeah, that one can go both ways. Um, sometimes people will play like super defensively around it, but they're kind of already doing that because of the pain engines and stuff being right in their drill. So they're tending to you know kind of lay back until they're ready to go forwards. Uh, the big thing that I found for me is that it lets me turn off defensive auras, so like running up and turning off an apothecary or, you know, like a foul blight spawn and stuff like that, being like, nope, no more, for at least, you know, until the next turn uh, has been very clutch. And uh, the other thing that occurred to me looking through your list, I see Drazar, but no Incubi now, so they've gone by the wayside. Yes, sir. So Drazar is the warlord. When Drazar is the warlord, he is, for how I play the army, um, basically I channel all of the armies what it's doing all of its different things if you boil it all down at the end of the day i am trying to maximize my usage of drazar he is violence incarnate <laughs> um and i do my absolute best to get him as many fight phases in a given game as i can the raider is basically in the list for him other stuff goes in it with him but that's just so i don't roll too many ones when he gets out he is like the star of the show in this list. Wow. I, I've been on the receiving end. Draz are getting to fight twice. Anthony, you actually keep the full rerolls on him. Not something that we see every time, but uh, I know uh, we've actually had this conversation before. It's something that you insist is, uh, is actually quite vital. Yeah. Um, honestly, break it down for me. We often see this on an Archon. Instead, you've put it on Drazar. How important is it for you just to have this on Drazar? I think... Uh, if I'm entirely honest with you, John, 
if if I wasn't making him the warlord, I wouldn't include him at all. Um, his consistency, giving himself the plus one to wound aura, and then having full rerolls to hit and wound mean I can reliably use him as his own trade piece. I can put him into multiple squads with some degree of confidence that he will clear both. Um, even as you saw in our game, like when I was hitting the hive guard, I rolled like three ones to wound on the first pass, and it was like he wasn't the warlord, that would have just been the end of that. I would have just been standing there hanging out with Hive Guard, but because he was, pick him up, try again, you know, wounded on two, so you get there. Um, often case, oftentimes I will throw him into something, and if he was not the warlord, that thing's alive, but because he is, that thing is dead. Um, his profile is amazing. He can either be five attacks at strength six, neg three, three damage, or seven attacks at strength five, two damage, neg three still. So he is. He's the best. Um, I love him dearly. I am definitely biased, but my play with Drazhar alone has won me a bunch of games, and most of them where he's been super clutch, I've been like high top table games. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he, he's a monster. Like, there's no way around it. Um, he he's the one thing that like I was always unwilling to cut from my list when I uh, did a little bit of Drukar reaction, uh, which I now of course pretend that I didn't, but I right. I, I did. <laughs> <didn't get that>. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, I'm with you. Drazar, Drazar is the one guy that I just can't cut. Um, yeah, for sure. Okay. Also, uh, on the note of the Archon, not giving the Archon Hatred Eternal frees up Ancient Evil, and those two go on buddy cop adventures together, and the Archon fights last thing so that Drazar can kill them. Um, and that is real nice, because then I can activate somewhere else first and not have to worry about losing Draz. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can never rely on the Tormentor Masks, right? Never, ever. They're always a 2 when you're on offense and a 12 when you're on defense. <laughs> It, it really does feel that way. It right on, okay. <laughs> so you, you've already mentioned uh, quite a few of the, the toolkits in the list. I, are, do you only have the, the three characters? Was it the Homunculus, the Archon, and Drazar? Yes, sir. Nice, nice low assassinate score. Okay. I like it. I like it. I was about to ask you about your characters, but I realized that we had just talked up all three of them. Yes, sir. Um, so going off of the characters then, I do actually want to take a second to approach uh, the secondaries. Um, Drukari was notorious for having a very strong secondary game in the uh, ye old playstyle. I'm curious if any of that has changed for you. Obviously, it's still not bad. But have you found that your secondaries change much after the balance patch, or are you still about taking the same things as before? Um, they're basically the same, except against, like, if I were to play against, like, the, uh, the Venom spam version of this now, I can pretty comfortably take Grind, which I wasn't able to do before. Mm -hmm. Um... Yeah, I wasn't really taking advantage of like the ability to build to the last and to list and stuff like that. Like I've never taken that secondary. I don't rate it well for Jukari because of how I play them. So not a ton has changed in that aspect. I actually <clears throat> ended up with more trash units in this list than I used to have. Um, just by virtue of like kind of how the points have worked out. And I have like these two troop units that can just go in deep strike or in strat reserve. Um, and Rod, or they can run around in Banner, or actually with the new mission secondary changes that have just been revealed, they'll be great for investigate sites. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, for the most part, the mission play is actually really comfortable with this list. Um, and in missions where you end up with like kind of an awkward third secondary, Thick City is really good at creating a primary differential. Yeah, I, I can believe that. Um, okay, speaking of, um, actually, let's honestly, let's roll right into it. Uh, generally, what is your primary plan with Thick City? Like, how how does this approach uh, primary? Again, I assume it's going to do it a little bit different than the uh, than the Drukari good stuff list of old. 
let's just take a second to highlight kind of the difference in how this approach is primary. Yeah, for sure. So in the older list, a lot of people um, were running these like MSU murder squads in a raider. Let's say you take like a five minute incubi and you put five racks with it as an example. Uh, they would both kind of just cannonball out of the raider at the objective. The incubi would sweep the objective and the racks would stand there with offside. Um, that obviously is not happening in this list because we have one raider. Um, so in this list, what you're doing is you're creating a tension on the board where your opponent wants to put nonsense on objectives so that they can score primary, but doing that gives you pain siphon. If you can get a lot of units in pain siphon too quickly, they're going to get tabled. So they have to make this very difficult choice between putting units on primary that and hoping they make it to their turn and giving you pain siphon or just hanging back. Um, and the longer they hang back, the tighter that noose gets and the worse the differential on primary gets. Because Thick City is so much tankier, you can afford to just put three talus on an objective nearly in the open and just be like, good luck. Yeah, and that is not an option we used to have. <laughs> no, no, I mean, honestly, right. Um, it, it feels like they're, I mean, at least maybe this is just, you know, play styles as much as anything. It feels like Thick City has less stuff for going and contesting objectives, but the stuff that's coming at you is more methodical. You know, it's not like I can just kill the things in threat range of this objective. It's not like eh, everything that's in threat range of this objective is really tough and I have to actually deal with it. And of course, taking Drukhari off of objectives feels a lot more difficult now. Even if you're slower, slower is a relative, right? Drukhari used to be one of the fastest armies in the game, and now they're just, you know, faster than average and tougher than average. And also they do hit a little harder than average, too, for good measure. Yeah, for sure. They're, the thing is, before, you used to be able to um, threaten, like, you can contest objectives with old Drukhari, because, you, you know, you tie up five racks with five dudes. Not too big of a deal. You're probably not going to die. But if you try and, like, rumble with Talos and Grotesques, most units are not going to make it out the other side of that. Um, especially if there's like a well-positioned Drazar or Archon set up to Heroic. That can be super dangerous. Um, and like I said, the more people like feed the beast, the more trouble they'll run into because of Pain Siphon. Um, mm -hmm. I'm going to reference Pain Siphon a ton. That's like a super important stratagem for how the list works. So can you, uh, I was just about to ask, with, with Pain Siphon, can you just explain, it is a, so it's a stratagem, you have to, you have to pay CP to, to use it. How does Pain Siphon work exactly with your army? So the way Pain Siphon works is when a unit in my army that is within six inches of a Kronos unit kills something, either shooting or in a melee, either or, you spend one CP, and that unit that did the killing, so not the Kronos unit, let's use Talos as an example, um, they go to turn five power from pain for the rest of the game. It's a permanent buff, and it gives them a whole myriad of advantages from the power from pain handful. The most notable of which are plus one to hit melee and a five up and vulnerable save. Nasty. Right. That is that is nasty. And can the Kronos get that themselves? So I guess with being a, uh, with it being in uh, shooting and melee, if people get too aggressive with you, then you can get it up to twice, <laughs> twice per turn. Uh, yeah, you can get it twice per player turn. Um, so in one of my first practice games, going into the bottom of turn two, I had five units on turn five power from pain. Because in my shooting and combat phase, I killed a unit. In Overwatch, I killed a unit. And then in their melee phase, I killed a unit. Wow. And it was just like complete madness. Yeah, I'm not comfortable with that. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of... When it is 
both the Talos, both the Kronos, and the Grotesque unit in turn five going into the bottom of two, that's that's rough. And everything oh, stacks, right? So you've got your homunculus nearby, and that provides plus one toughness to uh, things like the the Kronos and the Grotesques and the Rex and the whatever it happens to be close to. What's the what's the uh, range on that? So an important note with the homunculus on this list, I only have one, so he will only increase the toughness of the things of his coven. So he doesn't increase the toughness of Kronos, just the homoxides, the grotesques, and the talus. It's a six-inch aura. Okay, that's still pretty good. Talus and grotesques with an extra point of toughness is, uh, is tough to get through. Super good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, tell us about the other strats as well. You start with, I think it says here, 9 CP. Uh, we know yeah. that you're going to be spending several of those already on Pain Siphon. So what else comes into play? Um, so there's a couple of really important ones with the Talus. Um, because they have basically an inbuilt minus one to hit because of the weapon that they have, um, there's a stratagem called Prey on the Weak, I believe it is called. Um, but essentially, if a unit is below its starting strength, so if, even if they've taken one casualty, you get reroll ones to hit against them. If they are below half of their starting strength, you get full rerolls to hit against them. So if you just pull one casualty before the Talos go into a unit, you can then spend a CP and give them two rerolls to hit, which they would otherwise not have access to. Um, we got that, Pain Siphon, another big one um, that John here actually old school vected when we were playing is Fallback and Charge. Um, so Jakari have a one CP strat that is either Fallback and Shoot or Fallback and Charge, or you can spend two CP and do both. Um, that's very important because often in two certain matchups where like an enemy has like a lot of trash, like 30-man gaunt units or just like box walkers maybe, um, the Talos will kill most of them, but not all of them, and then you're just stood there. So that gives you the ability to then fall back over them because you have fly, and then smash the thing behind them, which is what you wanted to be hitting the whole time. It just prevents you from getting tied down. Yeah. So you've got like two or three that you save your CP to use all the time. I use those a lot. Um, some of the other ones that are big, uh, one that I'm actually taking a detachment partially for um, is Agents of Vect. So this is the new Agents of Vect. Uh, people are probably fairly familiar with this by now, but in case you're not, it's a zero CP stratagem that you can use once per game uh, after an opponent uses a stratagem to make it cost one more for the rest of the game. Um, some of the bad Thick City matchups really get shored up by using the stratagem to slow down the enemy's either offense or defensive capabilities or movement. But really, usually it's offensive. You're trying to like cripple them and drain that CP a little faster than they are likely prepared for. Yeah, yeah. And just, uh, that, it makes it a tough choice for you, though, right, doesn't it? Um, when you're going into a matchup, there'll be maybe the other, uh, and we can get more into this in part two, but uh, very often the other army will have two or three that are key strats as well, and you want to shut down one of those, so you've got to figure out which one is most important to them before you do it. Yeah, for sure. It's super easy to get uh, like decision locked with Vect, though. So I would just warn everyone out there the same thing that I said the first time that I was on this on Ardor. Uh, Vect is the first thing that makes you upset. The first time someone like does something, you're like, I don't want them to do that again. Just Vect it because it's super easy to forget about Vect and then not use it all game and then have wasted the utility. <laughs> so just use it on something so you don't use it on nothing. Um, but optimal play wise, yeah, there's uh, you should have like an idea into every matchup. When I was first starting Jukari, I actually made like a little spreadsheet of matchups and I was like, okay, in this matchup we Vect this and so on and so forth. Um, yeah, that was a good tool to have. Oh, I forgot a stratagem, actually. There is a super important stratagem that is a huge part of how this list does its offense uh, for Coven units, 2 CP, and it gives you full reroll to wound in the fight phase. 
that stratagem is very important. Yeah. yeah I <laughs> I hate it. And it, it's it's two or one CP, right? Depending on who uses it. Uh it's one if racks use it. Racks don't exactly have terrifying melee output. In my list, it's almost always two, but yes, it could be one. Can I ask, you just mentioned doing a spreadsheet there, and I don't want to tangent off too far from what we're discussing, but maybe this is something for both of you. I heard, I've heard Brandon Grant talk about this in previous podcasts as well. How important is it for you guys as top players to turn up at a table and have a really clear idea of uh, your strategy or tactics into whatever matchups because you've already worked it out. Very often we see players at my level turn up and kind of look at the table and look at the other army and stand there for ages trying to figure out secondaries or strategies into the into the other army. Doing spreadsheets is a way of solving all of that decision-making problem beforehand. So Anthony, you're obviously someone who looks at that kind of preparation before you go in. I'm interested in from both of you if, if you think this is an important thing that people should all be doing. Anthony, you want to take that one first? Sure. Um, so that was, um, so that's pretty much like the main part of the preparation that I did is something like Vect, where it's like really specific. You can know based just on army list what they're doing. A lot of the time what I'm doing at a given event is between rounds is talking with my team actually about a given matchup. And even if they don't necessarily play that army, just being able to bounce ideas off someone gives you a clear idea of like, okay, going into this next round, I'm playing this. A lot of things you do have to kind of figure out at the events, because beforehand, unless you have, you know, some degree of an idea what the terrain's going to look like, it's hard to do that, like, matchup-to-matchup decision-making, especially without the context of what mission you're playing. Um, so I try not to over-prepare, right. while also just making sure that I am prepared, if that makes sense. Sure. Because um, it's really easy to, like, throw yourself down a rabbit hole and end up with, like, the 42 decision-making <laughs> channels and like if one part of the tree goes wrong it's really easy to get confused so i try and just keep it like all right focus on the game in front of you prepare for you know as much as you can for that given matchup and kind of work from there um a huge part of that is experience being able to be like hey in this matchup he does this thing that can cripple my thing and i need to stop that thing from happening and how much that interfaces with the matchup but yeah i try and be well prepared but i'm not like coming to the table like spreadsheet in hand you know, game plan ready. I'm kind of just like, all right, let's kind of, you know, approach this as the situation demands. Got it. Uh, John, how do you feel about spreadsheets and prep? Uh, my, my take on it is um, the only thing I really try to know in advance is what my units do into different profiles. Um, I tr- I, I, I'm with Anthony. Um, I think that there is a definitely a case where over-preparing is real. And I don't ever want to think that my decision is made in advance. And then I go in and find out that this was the situation where it's wrong. Um, I had some problems, you know, not recently, luckily, but I've had some problems where I would kind of autopilot into matchups that I'd played before. And then it'd be like, ooh, this guy's playing a different, maybe this was not the right time to use X stratagem or this wasn't the best way to use Y unit because games can be different. So I try not to overprepare. The big thing that I do is I try to just have a general feel for what each offensive profile in my army does into the common things. And I I have it memorized into each toughness bracket so that, uh, or memorized or close enough to, or I can replicate it very quickly so that I can figure it out into something new. So like, I know how much damage Hiveguard do to uh, Dread Knights. So if I'm going up against anything that's toughness six, I can be like, yeah, I'm going to force this amount of saves. Okay, if they have a worse save than Dread Knights, I'll know I'll do a little bit more damage. If they have a better save than Dread Knights, I'll do a little bit less damage. I look at it that way. I don't look at it, at least for me, as 
I know that I need to use these four CP every turn, every time I play Grey Knights, because I'm going to play against the one Grey Knight player who took a Paladin squad, and suddenly it changes the math because I don't shoot them as efficient. Like, I, I don't want to have predetermined decisions on everything because I'm going to be wrong eventually when this scenario changes. When you change the variables, I don't want to assume that I have the right answer still. Got it. Great. Hey, thanks for that. Sorry, I did tangent us off you know, into another direction. So now let's drag ourselves back over to uh, Anthony's list. So uh, now that you've used this uh, and you've been through it, are there things that you're thinking maybe are underperforming and you want to get rid of them? So the only change that I really felt like I wanted to try was that grenade thing that I was talking about earlier, uh, switching the ampule for the animus, and I didn't really find much value in it. Um, I think oftentimes, as 40k players in general, it's really easy to get caught up in uh, like needing to micromanage every aspect of your list. But like the only game I lost at Austin was super winnable if I made slightly less mistakes. And I think often there's more value in taking the time to analyze like how you played a scenario rather than being like, well, if I had a different tool um, to kind of look at things that way. But right. that's just my take. I, I don't think the list is perfect, but I think it's the amount of time that I would have to spend drilling down every individual point um, is just not my area of expertise when it comes to this game. I'm definitely better at looking at like the the play to play decisions and being like, oh, if I would have just done X over Y, that would have changed Z, and that probably would have been the more correct play given the dynamics of the game at the time. So, but yeah, I'm pretty happy with how the list plays. I feel like it has all the tools I need to play how I want to play. Right. And, yeah. and Dre's hour is the right star with, of the show. <laughs> yes. I'm with you on the mindset, Anthony. I, I've, I found the same thing where there's a certain point where when a list is good enough, and that doesn't mean you should never change your list, but when a list is good enough, it's almost certainly going to come down to the player to take it over the finish line, not to change 50 points in the list. Like, I've, I've lost, you know, I, I win more than I lose, but I've still lost plenty of games. And the number of games that I've lost because I had mandrakes instead of scourges is not that many i lose more games because my mandrakes are in the wrong spot or i didn't put cablite somewhere or it's not that i didn't have enough units it's that the units i had i used them too freely and then when i lost them i was punished it's not oh yeah let me just you know cut something and put three more units in that that's almost never going to be the problem so i'm i'm with anthony on the mindset here i think he's got the right approach um I, I think honestly, when you've got a good list and you just hammer out the reps, it's going to reward you a lot more than than tweaking a hundred points every week. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's been one of the most rewarding parts about playing Jukari, um, them being very powerful as an aside. Um, <laughs> the depth of the book has been rewarding for learning it because um, I've I started playing it like just slightly before the book came out, and I'm like playing it through the the sets of nerfs, um, and I've essentially been able to spend. You know, I think I'm at like 250 reps at this point with some variation of the list. And I've basically just played three or four lists since the book has came out by just sticking to like, okay, this is good enough. I need to fix me, not the list. Right. I love it. Okay. So um, kind of, I guess, uh, work my way uh, you know, through the questions I'd like to ask. I was actually looking at your list and I realized that there is one unit that I don't think we have mentioned a single time. And it didn't change in the update, but I still kind of have to mention the fact that there's a Court of the Archon in this list because <laughs> I love it. And yes. I'm actually curious because the Court of the Archon in the good stuff list kind of functioned as the beef, where the list had no beef, everything was one wound, a decent save at best, and would die the second a bulk gun looked at it. And we instead have the Court of the Archon as that one tough unit. 
you kind of have the army now where everything is a tough unit. Does the court itself did not change at all? Not a point, not a rule, nothing. Does how you use the court change at all? So yeah, big time. Uh, I was definitely using the court differently than a lot of people. Uh, I looked at the court as just an efficient, a point efficient brick of wounds that sat on my home objective. And if they did nothing else other than hold that home objective, I considered them a tremendous win. Um, this change in my list was actually brought on by my lost Tyler Bortel at Charity Hammer. Um, because I got like, you know, he just kept attacking my home objective with nonsense and killing like the five racks that I would put on. It would die to five GSC dudes with claws because they're racks and they die. Um, so I got super tired of that and I was just like, forget it. We'll cut some stuff. We'll figure out the points after and we will get an entire court of the Archon to sit on my home objective. I am not losing that objective ever again. Uh, and that change worked. It worked really well. Uh, now in the new list, we have 10 Hamoxites that can sit back there. Super tough for different reasons, but still really, really tough. Perfect at what they do. So now the court goes in the boat uh, with the Archon and the and Drazar and the Drazar in most matchups. Um, and their role is that as long as I don't roll 8 million ones, is that they screen the Archon and Draz when they get out. Um, because of the bodyguard rule on the Sliss, they screen the Archon down to the last man. And obviously Draz, you know, it becomes available a little bit sooner, but ideally when I get Draz out, he's safe, and then it's kind of just the Archon that's in, you know, air quotes trouble. Okay. And that's it. Uh, they're also just a lot of attacks, and they're really good at clearing hordes, the stuff that I don't necessarily want, like, other units to have to deal with. The Grotesques are good at it, but like Talos need like hot rolls on their mortal wound count, and Draz and the Archon really don't want to be hitting that stuff. Like they'll kill like 15 dudes pretty efficiently, but more than that, it gets dicey in a hurry. Um and yeah, so that's pretty much what they do. The court gets in there with like a, a lot of attacks and they hit on twos very early because they're Blackheart. Between that and the rerolls from Kronos and Archon, they're very efficient at killing like garbage that gets in the way. Fair, I like it. I mean I, I love Court of the Archons. I think that they're Probably my favorite unit from Drukari, honestly. Um, man, it's ugh, I, I love them, and I, they're, it's the unit that surprised me the most that it didn't change its balance update. Um, I like that you know Drukari has the depth, as you mentioned, to take a unit that was very good, had a set role in almost in very uh, quite a few Drukari lists, and you just completely flip what it does, and it's still the exact same, and it's still so good at it. It's just a very flexible unit. Um, it's weird to me that it's like not one of the toughest things in the list anymore because i still think of it as being so tough and when yeah. i run the math on it it is still so tough yeah there's definitely some stuff in the meta that can like chew through it pretty quickly now because just because like it was the change i mean just to tyranids um but between them and orcs and stuff but like yeah it's it's still really tough like it gets its power uh it's involved real early because of black art so and then mm -hmm. it's like five up five up on three wood models it's like kind of a nightmare so yeah it can be a real bear to chew through and i don't I don't value their offensive output super highly unless, that, again, there's a bunch of trash. So as long as they die slowly enough that Draz and the Archon are, like, free next turn, we're good. They did their job. Yeah. my I guess my question would be that if people are starting to tech into Thick City in general and are starting to bring higher damage uh, you know, stuff, does that make the court less valuable? Or do you think it's just like, hey, if they're using their anti-thick on the court, they're not using it on the literal thick that's right there? Yeah, so to so to play my hand a little bit, um, the best way to counter Thick City is not with high damage stuff, as that tends to be lower volume. What the 
the fastest way to go through the the thick the thickness is actually with super high volume AP two or three one damage weapons. If you have a lot of those, or just like insano volume like Termagants, but just in general, like that damage one stuff at very high volume goes through thick city much more quickly. Um, the Inwolden does not start very good in Thick City, but it gets better very fast. And if you're low volume and you're losing 17% of your shots or 33% of your shots off the rip to my Inwolden, there's not a lot of stuff that's going to then successfully hit, successfully wound, and not get feel no pain into nothing. So high volume is the way. In in general, do you, because we're talking about the power of pain, power from pain table going up, you know, you get more bonuses as the game goes on you can use Pain Siphon to increase that rate. Uh, so are you someone who, and obviously it'll depend a bit on the opposition, but in general, do you see yourself as a person who is going to get out there and get aggressive and, and really try and use Pain Siphon from turn one and get things moving? Or do you tend to play a little cagier than that, deploy by hiding things? And, you know, you talked about the go turn earlier on being turn or uh, turn two or sometimes turn three. Are you someone that kind of likes to wait and sort of see the lay of the land a bit before you before you hit go? So John can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I'm probably the most aggressive Jukari player in the top ten. Um, <laughs> I'm definitely coming for them. I'm not KG at all. Uh, you know, it says it on the back of the book: unleash the prey takers. That is basically my strategy. I'm coming for you. You're coming back to Kamara. That's how this ends. Um, and I'm using a huge part of Thick City's success is that it ties into that playstyle super well. Because if someone wants to do the thing I hate the most, which is put five man obstacle units on objectives and take away my primary, I'm going to murder them, and then I'm going to murder the rest of their army with the power that I got from murdering the little unit. Yeah, and that's no, the play. I, no, no disagreements. Anthony's the most aggressive Dark Elder player against. <laughs> uh, for better or worse. Um, yep. You know, Anthony often, I like to joke with him about, you know, how he doesn't screen out his backfield. And he likes to joke with me about the fact that his entire army is in my deployment zone. So yep. it's, a, it's a little back and forth. <laughs> I'm like, what backfield? Your backfield is my backfield. Then it's perfectly screened out Dang with it. all my units. <laughs> You're never going to be left wondering, right? And it just, it does make it quite hard to um, figure out what to do against that. Somebody who's so aggressive with tough units who are, as John already pointed out, you know, reasonably quick. Um, and when you do things like you put silly little units on to try and take them, that's just inviting you to be stronger, faster, and even go faster and be more aggressive. Yeah, exactly. It's a it's a positive feedback loop for what I already wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it directly counters the gameplay situation that frustrates me most. So it has been a welcome change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I I can see it. I mean, I'm. I remember, you know, where we talked about how you liked being more aggressive with the old good stuff list. We've had you on the podcast in the past where we, we got to compare your very aggressive play style to the more conservative one. I th Do you think that this Thick City builds better to your play style? Yeah, I, I absolutely think so. Um, and there are ways to make this even more aggressive in melee, but it involves cutting down the Kronos. And I'm really hesitant to do that um, because having non-Dark Techno Kronos makes some of the matchups that are are really good but really common worse and i don't ever want to lose those so having that many chronos is nice when you're putting your list together how much thought do you put into other people's secondaries and what they might be able to take you already mentioned you only have three characters so that shuts down assassinate really i mean i suppose people can take it and get 10 points but 
Um, how much thought are you putting into trying to shut down other people's secondary options? Uh, so I, I do and I don't. Um, the list gives up 13. It'll be 14 after the update for Bring It Down. Um, and that kind of just is what it is. Um, that can be a higher number depending on if I get Kronos Resurrections off because um, that is a thing Kronos can do. They can resurrect themselves or Talos. Um, and so like that secondary is just kind of a thing in the list. You can reduce the number of pain engines, but I don't feel it's worth compromising my list just to hurt their chance at a secondary. Um, I don't want people in general to take Assassinate against me. I use my combat characters extremely aggressively. It is very likely that they will die. I do not want my opponent to score points for that. So the list is set up in such a way that if they elect to do so, they will not score very many because I don't have that many of them. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I actually have a question for you about the Kronos. Um, we've talked about how the the Talos are Artisans of Flesh, the Kronos are Dark Tachinomancer. By definition, the homunculus will buff the Talos but will not buff the Kronos. Has it ever and has it ever been a problem where the Kronos are the same as a Talos, but a lot less defensive as far as profiles go? Where you're the same wounds, the feel no pain, the same invulns but minus one toughness, so you're T6 instead of seven often, and uh, you don't get that minus one damage. Has that been a problem where you have these four units and two of them are just a lot easier to kill? So this Dark Technotum Answer Detachment is actually entirely unchanged from what I was running when I was playing good stuff. So I'm actually super used to these guys being that defensive profile already. Usually what I will do with them is I'll try and get them into dense, um, and if my opponent wants to dump his firepower at the Kronos, that is firepower that's not going at the Talos. Naturally, some profiles are more effective into the Kronos than the Talos, but wounds are still wounds, and Talos do die. They're not actually immortal, so it creates this interesting tension where like, the opponent has to decide between shooting the Kronos, that will buff the Talos if you don't kill them, or shooting the Talos, removing some of the Kronos' buff targets, but then getting hit by the flamers from the Kronos. Um, and the goal there again is to create the scenario where there's like not really an ideal choice between the two, and it super depends on like what army I'm playing against. So that might be more of like a like a part two question where we get to each matchup, and you're like Chronos or Talos. Uh, but certain profiles again are really good into the Chronos, others not so much. In general, um, the like I've been told before, I like that like air quotes the weak part of the list is the Chronos because you can kill them quickly. It's still really hard to kill a Kronos. Like, it's really weird because they have seven wounds and their toughness is just high enough. And between that and the feel no pain, it's like very difficult to get rid of them. So if someone wants to commit a ton of shooting into them to get rid of them, that's fine. The Talos are now untouched. And that's really problematic for different reasons. Um, how often... I bet you, I better ask, when you, you mentioned that the Kronos can resurrect. How does that work? Is that a stratagem or uh, just an ability from what detachment they're in? How does it come about? So it's an innate ability that Kronos have. Kronos are not good at melee, but they're okay at it. Uh, they have four attacks each. They baseline hit on fours, so threes of power from pain. They're strength five. They're AP one, and they're one damage, unless you roll a six, and then it becomes AP two, two damage. Not super exciting. But each time they kill a model, they basically heal a unit, and if the unit is at full health, like if all the models in the unit are at full health, they resurrect someone. Um, that can be backbreaking if the thing getting resurrected 
is a Talos or one of the other Kronos. Um, if it is a full Kronos unit and they hit like a garbage unit and kill like eight dudes, that's you know a healed guy and then seven wounds put back on or whatever it works out to be, depending on the amount of wounds in the unit at the time. Um, so that's another reason, another way the list punishes people throwing like five mans into my face of infantry garbage. You just kill them, put a heal, you know, put a wound back on a nearby core unit. Wow. Yeah, that 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 sounds like one of those uh, things that when you're playing against it, it's just it's just a killer. You're kind of like doing all this work to try and try and chew through your army, and you're just resurrecting stuff. Yeah, it is a uh, basically every time I show up to the table, if a person is not familiar with playing against Ducari, I have to do like a like a ten minute bit on like how Chronos work because um, there's a lot going on from that one unit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I will say Chronos are my least favorite part of this list both in the list and also to play against because yeah. I just hate thinking about it. Like I hate being like, Oop, I can't put my, my cheap stuff anywhere near the Kronos because they'll just get a Talos. If I do, yep. you know, they yeah, like the, exactly. the Kronos rumble in, they kill a couple cultists and suddenly there's half of a Talos just being reconstructed in front of me. And then he punches me in the same turn. I'm like, what? Yeah. Because of the timing of it, you can just activate the Kronos first and put Talos back into a unit that hasn't swung yet. And then hit with the new guy. It's a. Uh, it's pretty rough when that happens. I've seen it. I wasn't particularly thrilled about it. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's really good. Yeah, it's very powerful. <laughs> right on. Okay. Um, just thinking through the list here, I I think I've asked all the questions I had. Um, Steve, did you have anything else that you wanted to touch on in this part? No, man. I've I've asked the questions I've gotten. Uh, Anthony's done a great job of explaining for a simpleton like me just how some of those uh, basic interactions work, which is really great. So. <laughs> it's kind of. I, I still don't know what the hell I would do about it, but maybe that's where part two comes in. So, a Anthony, is there anything else important you think we need to cover off um, just from the list or the list build or stuff that you keep in your head when you're putting it all together? Uh, not a ton offhand. I'm kind of just like looking at the stuff now. There's nothing that's like super important. Again, a lot of the play in the list is the micro play of like how you're using the Chronos to patch up the Talos, how you're triggering pain siphons. And uh, perhaps most importantly, what you're doing with that raider full of murder. Um, it has different uses in every game and every matchup. How it's used is, you know, fairly unique. So, yeah, that's a very important nuance of the list. And if you're new and picking up the list, uh, it's it's going to be a lot. It's going to be overwhelming off the jump, but it gets easier eventually. I guess I, I should ask, is one of the things with the list, it sounds like because everything kind of works together and the chronos need to be near the other stuff, it, does it all work as like a big ball of death or is it are you able to spread things out at a certain point in the game uh if you do split there's a fairly particular way that it needs to get done uh so for myself for example if i'm in a match where i'm going to play kind of divided uh the divide is usually that one side gets the both units of talos a unit of chronos and the homunculus and the other side will get the raider the chronos and the grotesques Right. Um, and I find that that level of like split is acceptable um, because the Kronos can then buff the grotesques or themselves. And then on the other side, someone's usually too busy dealing with the Talos to shoot at the Kronos, who can then buff the Talos. So if you have to split, that's the way to do it. If not, if you're playing something like priority targets or direct assault, uh, you kind of just rumble in the middle and dare your opponent to come in. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's the idea rumble in the middle and dare your opponent to come at you that just sounds like the best game plan ever um, it's real fun yeah, yeah for you <laughs> sure yes <laughs> 
Um, all right. Well, I, you know what? I guess that's part one done then. I feel like we're just getting started, folks. So if you got this far in and you don't go get part two, it's like turning up to a Christmas party and not opening the presents. It's super easy to get part two. You just head over to theartofwar40k.com and sign up so you can get the second half of this chat and every uh, every chat and all of the other great content as well. In the second part of this conversation, John and Anthony are going to uh, cover the tactics and plans against other armies and army archetypes. So if you want to know how to play Thick City, maybe you're buying the models and you're putting the list together and you want to know how it works, cool. Or if you come up against Thick City in your meta in your local neighborhood or against your friends, you want to know how to beat it down, just to tune into part two. Anthony, for the folks who haven't subscribed uh, and who are saying goodbye to you now, is there anything you want to plug? as in where we can find you or anything you're part of. Yeah, uh, I don't do a ton of content, except when I get on invited on the various Art of War platforms, but I do want to give uh, just like two shout-outs. Uh, one is to my team, Vindicta. Uh, it's all the boys that help me, you know, kind of on the come-up, get better at playing. Uh, they're a huge part of my success and getting to events and having people to go with. And the other one is Mythico Studios, my local game store that runs tournaments that was the shark tank I came up in and is a huge part of how I got good as quickly as I did. Uh, at Austin, I was playing with their manager, Kenny's models partially. So he is a big part of how I was actually able to run Thick City. So shout out again, Mythicos. Thank you again, Kenny. You know, thanks guys. It's so good to have a, um, a local game store that supports you and that you're able to support in return. Love that. Um, all right, John, are you ready with the hard hitting questions and all of the, all of the layers of intrigue? Oh, I'm excited and ready for part two. I'm going to do my best to tear apart Big City. <laughs> nice. Here, here we go. If you're a subscriber, we'll see you real soon. If not, for John Lennon and Anthony Vanella, I'm Steve Joel. Thanks so much for listening. This is The Art of War. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War Down Under and Art of War Unbroken on the competitive 40K network. The Art of War 40K.com.